Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact each and every one of us every single day. And today, we're going to hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm Peter Tilden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper and Anna Vicino. How are you guys doing? Wonderful. Thank you for asking. How about you, Peter? Doing very, very well. Thank you for asking. We're all good. We all look healthy and pinkish. By the way, should I ask, David, can you tell when somebody walks into your office if their color is off, if they have some kind of thing going on? I have a gentleman that walked into my office this week who looked like the color of snow. (gasps) And it was clear that he had a very bad anemia. Oh, dear. So the answer is yes. Coloration makes a difference. And eye color, too? I just read somebody. Oh, I read the thing about, what's his name from Ghost? Patrick Swayze? Patrick Swayze, that the way his wife and he determined that he had a pancreatic issue was that his eyes were yellowish. And they ignored it for a bit, and boom. Yellow eyes are one indication that your liver is going south. But if you open the bottom lid and look at the coloration of the inside of your bottom eyelid, you'll see that it's pink. When you're anemic, it's no longer pink. So if you're weak, tired, short of breath, any of those things, and you want to determine whether or not you have an anemia, that's a very easy, cheap way to do this. Wow. Well, good night, everybody. Thank you for for. Wow. I think we just did the show. <laughs> that was pretty fascinating. So color is important. By the way, I just, I just love that you sprang that on Kipper and he was like, I gotcha. Well, he is a doctor and he does have a degree on his wall, yeah. so you would hope. Yeah, but I feel like if you ask me questions about any way I've made money, I probably wouldn't be able to answer them. You actually think if somebody comes in and they're an odd color, David's just going to go, eh, whatever. No, of course not. (laughs) So today, David's going to be telling us all about, uh, there's a new test to help predict Alzheimer's dementia, which is uh, incredible. Um, I'm hoping that's a good thing for early detection. And there's a new cause for UTIs that frankly shocked me when I heard about it. And in this just happened, and I was kind of stunned that this many people have perspiration issues that are embarrassing, that are disconcerting. Over 15 million people, um, a hyper sweat, if you want to call it that, and we'll find out why. And there's a brand new thing you can do about that. And then we've got uh, a caller who wants to ask about something that was in the news, an illness that was in the news that shocked all of us. So let's get started with it. David, I guess let's kick this off with cognition and Alzheimer's. This is a big area of exploration now with Alzheimer's dementia because we're trying to see if we can figure this out long before people are symptomatic. And this has really been the holy grail. And there is a study that comes out of Albert Einstein Medical College. So you know they're smart. You know this has got to be meaningful. And they came up with a test, very simple test. It's called the SOMI test, S-O-M-I, and it stands for Stages of Objective Memory Impairment. And in this test, they studied a 1,000 people over 10 years, and they gave them this very simple test. And the test is as follows. You are given a card, four cards, actually. On each card is a picture, and under the picture is a little clue. As an example, you get a picture of a grape, and underneath the grape, it says fruit. That helps sort of reinforce your memory to the picture of the grape. You get four of these, and then after they've shown you these four cards, they then have you repeat what you saw. You have to tell them what these four things were. They grade this on a zero to four scale. Zero is perfect memory. Four is bad memory. 
By the way, the average age in this study was 69, 70 years old, but they studied people from their 40s to age 100. So they had a pretty broad demographic with this. And what they found was that people that had a zero score, and this was about half of the people in this study, had no memory issues. People that had a three and four score, which were the worst, this was about a 5% group. But this 5% group went on and correlated very well with the development of Alzheimer's dementia. It's a very simple sort of uh, testing and monitoring. And they also correlated these scores, these three and four scores, with the amount of tau and amyloid protein that they found in these people, which was highly elevated. They also found that APO4, which is that allele, the genetic marker for Alzheimer's, was four times higher in this group that were scored three and four on this test. So now they've come up with this test, very simple test, that can identify people 10 years in advance as to who is at risk. Given that, now we have to come up with what do we do about these people that are at risk? What are the preventions that we currently have? Well, those are lifestyle changes. We've talked about all of these, uh, a good diet, Mediterranean diet, getting good rest, regular exercise, more coffee, intellectual stimulation. There are medical conditions that can be associated with this kind of dementia. So you have to treat and control those medical conditions, sleep apnea, depression, high blood pressure. And then there are certain medications that we now use to try to blunt this progression of the memory loss. Frankly, these medicines, there's two major medicines. One is Aricept, one is Namenda. We've had these forever. I really have not seen much value in these medicines. Everybody takes them because we're so starving for something to do. Aricept works to increase the amount of acetylcholine in the brain, which allows for better communication between these brain cells. And the Menda, the other one, it actually blocks a neurotransmitter that we've mentioned before called glutamate. Glutamate has some inflammatory potential. And the newest one that's come out is called lecanemab. It's one of those monoclonal antibodies. It was released last year, got a lot of press. And it has actually cut cognitive decline by almost 30%. So that was a really great idea. The problem is, and it does this, by the way, by preventing these amyloid plaques from clumping together and interfering with the brain's ability to get rid of them. The problem with lecanemab is that it's extremely expensive. There are adverse effects, primarily bleeding into the brain. And so it hasn't really caught on, even though it does appear to have some benefit. So the idea of of identifying something 10 years in advance and then trying to not only identify who's at risk and then step up the preventative treatments that we do have, it's going to allow us to start looking at preventative treatments in development that will wall off some of these uh, physiologic changes that happen. You know, there's another interesting one too, and this is subtle and can be mixed with other illnesses, but a loss of smell is a very early sign of dementia, can be, can be a sign of other things. And when we were in the COVID phase and people were losing their taste and their smell, 
I had so many phone calls about, do I have early Alzheimer's? And the reality was that they had COVID. But so we're constantly looking for something that can identify this. The demographic now that's affected are people over 60. And there's a huge carrot for whoever comes up with these treatments. Well, and this is the test that you can ask the doctor for? This is, is it widely available? It's available through Albert Einstein College okay. of Medicine. How you enroll in that study, I'm not sure, mm. but the test is available and it's been very well correlated with these other physiologic changes that are associated with Alzheimer's. Could this also be what I thought of right away with somebody's at work and how God, how's not doing his job well, and he's he's just falling down, and he forgot to do this task, or whatever. Sometimes that could be looked at as incompetence or whatever, and you don't realize that the person may be experiencing symptoms ahead of time of memory loss, short-term memory loss, that has to do with this. Is that possible that in our workplace that's going on? Peter, absolutely. That's a good application for this, and unfortunately, as a clinician, I usually see people with this disease very late in the game. So to be able to, on on one of these routine preventative health examinations, to give a simple test like this. Now, there are people that don't want to know. There are people that really prefer not to have preventative testing for that reason. But for people that have a strong family history of Alzheimer's dementia, they want to know. And for people that are hypochondriacal in general, and maybe having memory loss for other reasons, because of depression, because of uh, a grief, because of other things that can cause memory loss. This is a very nice way to differentiate that. The only other question I have concerning this, and we can look it up and we'll have the answer possibly for the next episode. Can anybody co-opt the name Albert Einstein for their business? Or yeah. do they have to get the family's blessing and have a certain yeah. level of intelligence? Because could I could I start the Albert Einstein nursery school tomorrow with I'm the implication? Start the Albert Einstein school for comics. It does ramp it up a little bit, doesn't it? I'm actually yes. going to a baseball game tonight with Albert Einstein, but that's a whole different story. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which is Albert Brooks, we should say. Right. Okay, moving on. We are going to be discussing something that I always thought you got UTIs from too much sex or a, a, a bacterial infection. And so to find out there's this other way that you can get UTIs, Doc, please tell us about this. This is a really interesting study that was done in Arizona, and it was a very well done study that identified a new link between urinary tract infections and our food supply. And what they did was that they found uh, through their agricultural studies, they found that E. coli also exists on meat and poultry. We know that E. coli is a bacterial organism that has many strains and is very hard to treat now uh, because it has not only mutated, but we have so much prescribing of antibiotics for UTIs are so common that there's a lot of antibiotic resistance. So they're becoming harder and harder to treat. Also, this bacteria, E. coli, is the number one leading cause of sepsis and death in people that have urinary tract infections, Mm. particularly older women that have this. And what the study did in Arizona was that they identify these E. coli strains on 
chicken, turkey, and pork. And they did genetic analysis, genetic sequencing, and they came up with several of these E. coli strains that were also common to humans, that, that we had, we shared this with these animals. And they then took urine specimens from women that were hospitalized with very serious UTIs that had sepsis that were critical in, in this illness. And they found that there was a, a very high association of these UTIs. It was 8 to 10% of these women had these strains that were attributable to these meat items. And it's important because we probably see well over a half a million uh, urinary tract infections when they went back and studied this that are from animal sources and not from what you described, Anna, as just having sex and just um, having a good time. The normal. By the way, do you know why that happens? Do you know why sexual? I, I would assume that be, the friction of the action would be making a place for bacteria to grow. Peter, your guess? It's kind of gross, I think, but in some way, the male's genitalia uh, gets in contact with the bacteria, possibly from the anus, whatever, and then it's inserted and you got a UTI. Yes? Very close to being right. The problem is a neighborhood problem. So the anus and the vaginal tract are next door neighbors. So the E. coli lives in the vat, it lives in the intestinal tract. And if you are having active sexual activity that might be aggressive, that might be causing some trauma to the upper vaginal area, which is where the urethra lives, or if one is wiping themselves after urination from south to north, you're oh. spreading, you're Girls, spreading don't do that. bacteria. So those are the reasons that we see this more commonly in women. We don't see this very commonly in men because, again, the anatomy is a little bit different. Well, Doc, let me ask you this. If it's coming from food sources, is it that we're not cooking our food all the way? Or Because I know, I know, too, that this comes back to probably you're going to tell us that the gut microbiome has got to be pretty healthy because I know we have bad bacteria and good bacteria living ideally in harmony with the good bacteria winning out. But it sounds like the bad bacteria, if it gets too strong, can win. So washing the food is important. Washing your hands is important if you are handling these foods. Washing the cutting boards that you're using, yep. very important. So yes, you're absolutely right. What's interesting from this study is that Johnson & Johnson has been working on a vaccine for E. coli and for urinary tract infections. And because there's such a high association of sepsis and death from these urinary tract infections, particularly in women over 60, we're very close to this vaccine being available Great. to us. They're, they're finishing their phase three trials. So older people, one might ask, well, why is it that it's only in older people that they're more vulnerable. The immune system changes as we get older. So our ability as an older person to fight off these infections goes down. Older people tend to have more procedures because they're having more health problems. So right. these E. coli can make themselves known. And the bladder itself becomes weaker with age. So it doesn't empty as well. And so these E. coli that are in the bladder are not being eliminated. Mm, they're they're not getting around. flushed out. So this is really a, a huge bonus that seems to be coming from this 
potential vaccine. And the vaccine seems to be in these trials seems to be working very well. That's amazing. I just had one quick thing you're making me think of. I had a, I had to go in for a surgical procedure and, you know, they did the urinalysis before they put all the IVs and stuff in. And then they said, oh, you have a UTI. Um, we're going to give you an extra antibiotic through the, the, the line through what's it called? The yeah, IV. Intravenous, yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember thinking to myself, that's so strange. I didn't even know that I had a UTI. I'm glad they tested. You know what I mean? So like sometimes, cause I was thinking I haven't had a UTI since I was in my twenties, since I, in my wild days, you know what I mean? Like I just was like, that was shocking. And, and the fact that you could even have something and be sick and not even know it. I don't know. Is that common? So urinary tract infections are commonly asymptomatic that you don't wow. always know that you have one. But obviously important to recognize and and to treat. And David, are you predisposed once you have one? Are you predisposed to get it easier than someone else who who hasn't had one? Yes, and usually, Peter, that's because of the behavioral issues that we talked about with uh, hygiene, with sexual activity. My wife's father is predisposed; he's in his eighties, late eighties, and we discussed this because we called you right away. It presented like he has a bit of dementia. It presented like mm. worse dementia. And now we know every time he has a urinary tract infection, it affects his memory. And it's severe. I mean, it is severe. And the sense was, I said to my wife the first time, I don't think overnight you degrade that quickly. It's got to be something else, which is when we called you and you said, oh no, a, a urinary tract infection in an older person can definitely affect memory. It's the first thing that we look at when we see an acute change in mental status. And men get these, by the way, don't, this is not restricted to women. Men get them for a different anatomic reason, the prostate that surrounds the urethra before it exits, as it gets bigger, can constrict the urethra, limiting the outflow of the urine from the bladder. And then that urine sticks around and becomes secondarily infected. So men do get this, and, and older men in particular. But it clears up very You can see the difference as soon as he's on strong antibiotics. It's amazing to see how his head gets clear. It's wild. Yes. No, it's very common. I have a woman that I'm treating now who's at the end stage of her life and has been failing. But she, this week, had an acute, which was subtle, but acute change in her mental status. Just putting her on some antibiotics for her bladder, she turned right around. Amazing. Uh, this is a really cool, this just happened, because so many people have sweat. I have a sweating issue, but mine is different. It's from my forehead. So I dropped every ball in baseball because I sweat from my forehead into <laughs> my eyes. We need you to wear the, the sweatband on the head, like the greatest too, American hero. But as a kid, that's where, I, that's, that's where <laughs> it happened, and I hate it. I hate it. I also have experienced the George Costanza I took a shower and it didn't stick because living in Philadelphia, it's humid and hot. Right. You take the shower, you come out and you start, start sweating, mm -hmm. which is really annoying. But this just happened. There is relief, it appears, for people who have specifically a lot of underarm sweating, um, which is not only embarrassing for people, but not healthy. Um, and a lot of people don't want to even talk about it. It's a much more common problem than you think. And it's a common problem 
that people don't talk about in a doctor's office. And the way you actually know they have this problem is when you shake their hand or when you're talking to them and you see that they're just pitting out while you're having this conversation. And by the way, speaking of Albert Brooks, this is uh, Albert Brooks in broadcast news. Yes, they, they had the right. between takes. They had to take a hairdryer and try. And he would say, oh "It looked like he was in a pool." And he would say, "Does it show? <laughs> Which is, is it is it showing on camera?" Meanwhile, he's soaking, soaking wet. Oh my god! So what happens is that the sympathetic nervous system that stimulates the sweat glands is hyperactive in these certain ganglion, certain sympathetic ganglion nerve clumps in in the body. And this can happen in the neck. This can happen in the chest, in the spine. This can happen under the arms, can happen in the groin. But imagine that if you are constantly wet in your hands, let's just use that as an example. You can't really hold somebody's hand. You can't take a newspaper or a magazine and read it without soaking it. You can't take an examination in a classroom on a piece of paper because you're now sweating through that. And this tends to be most pronounced during adolescence when these hormones were changing. So imagine this poor adolescent that is trying to be socially accepted, might like a boy or a girl, and try to have a relationship with them. And then you add this story in, which is the one about the sweating in the armpits. And there's no amount of clothing that can take care of that. So it's a very traumatic emotional illness. So the current treatments that we have for this are not very good. We have Botox, which blocks the nerve signals that activate these sweat glands. We have something called Miradry, which is a thermal device that stimulates the sweat glands with heat and actually knocks them out. It's an impractical solution. It's two to $3,000 a treatment. You need three treatments. So, and insurance doesn't cover that. Mm-hmm. So you have to be a rich sweater to even know about that. And there are surgeries that are called sympathectomies where you actually go in and you either take out that in the spinal canal where those nerves emanate, or you interrupt them in some way by by knocking out some of their pathways. And the problem with this is that, stick with the person that has sweating under the arm. There's a great product that just came out. This is what we're going to talk about. But you can eliminate the sweating in the palms and the soles or in the chest, but you are likely going to get sweating in other places. 70% of people are going to then develop this hyperactivity in some other part of the body. But if you can knock out the armpit or the hands and the soles, people are are much happier to deal with what may come next. The new product is called Brella, and it's an underarm patch. This is sort of amazing. It's an underarm patch that you put on for three minutes. And in after this three minutes, you have a tremendous reduction in sweating that will last three to four months. And it works by, there's sodium in this patch, salt. And the salt draws out the sweat into the patch. And the combination of the salt and the sweat creates a microthermal injury to the sweat gland. So it sort of anesthetizes the sweat gland. And 
you do this again in three or four months, but this has been an amazing breakthrough. The other question that I have is if you can put this under the arm, can you put this along the spinal canal, you know, in the back of the neck or in the, in the middle of the back for the thorax area? That I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of looking into this because I'm dealing with someone that has currently, it's interesting, this was a patient that came in, young girl, same issues, all the anxiety, and all that anxiety, by the way, creates more anxiety. Right. creates more mm-hmm. stress, and that creates more catecholamines, more stress hormones. And there is a doctor in our community that does this surgery and a very good job, but you end up usually with some other area. Also, when you do this surgery, because it's close to the spinal cord, for some reason you get what's called a pneumothorax, and in in going in to do this, you can create an air leak in the lung, oh. and that's actually pretty common. It's not serious. They don't need to be hospitalized, but they it can be more complicated. So it's not a completely benign procedure, nor is it a 100% cure rate. So this young woman who was going through this workup with this doctor, I called her this week and I said, hold the phone on this surgery. Let's see if there's some way to adapt this umbrella patch into some... So I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's certainly a, a, an important question. And uh, for those people that are listening and don't like to talk about this, even to your doctor, know that there's potential help on the way. Is there anybody who can't use it? Is there any downside? Is there any warning? No, there. In, in these studies, it didn't identify any anything like that. Well, any that's group. good. Amazing. I got to say, I've never had an issue with it, but I've certainly performed with plenty of actors who do, and it's always like I feel for you. But then when the perimenopause symptoms started and the the sweats and the hot flashes and night sweats and stuff like that. I was like, oh, I can't believe people deal with this kind of sweating like on, on the regs. It's, well, it that's, sucks. That's subject for another show, I think. But there is something coming out for that kind of hormonal oh, good. hot flashes. Bring that, it on. It's going to be really life-changing for people. Wow. Huge. Uh, we have a caller, David, who, who wants to ask about the football player who collapsed on the field in his condition because it's in the news for a bit, and then it goes out of the news, and people are concerned, as this caller is, so I'll let them ask the question. Hey, Dr. Kipper. My name is Jerry. I was wondering if they ever figured out what caused Damar Hamlin to collapse during the football game. Thank you so much. So, Jerry, it's an interesting question because many people have seen this in action. And this is called comoteo cordis, and that's a heart condition. Those of us that saw Damar Hamlin drop out in a football game. After he made a tackle, he then stood up and several seconds later, then he just collapsed. So this is what what it is. This is how it happens. And this is what we can do going forward to try to prevent this from happening. This is a condition which creates a cardiac arrest and it then creates an arrhythmia. And this is how this works. The heart works automatically by creating an electrical impulse that starts in the little chamber on the top called the atrium. That electrical impulse travels through the atrium. The atrium then contracts the blood that it's received from the lungs that now is full of oxygen into the ventricle. The ventricle then is filling up with this blood and that same electrical system when it gets to its critical point 
makes that heart muscle contract that blood into the aorta and all through the body and everybody's happy. And this happens automatically, uh, can happen, you know, 70 times a minute. We're not really paying attention to any of this. What happens in comatial cortis is that there is blunt trauma to the ventricle, not the atrium, but to the ventricle. While the ventricle is filling up with blood, it's that split second between the impulse that it gets from the atrium giving it the blood and the ventricle then filling and contracting. In that split second, if you hit somebody in the ventricle, uh, then you create what's called ventricular fibrillation. And that's actually a compensatory mechanism that the body has because now it sees that you're not going to be able to have a normal contraction. Right. So that muscle says, well, I'm going to just start fibrillating. It's like seizing to try to get that blood out into the system. The problem with ventricular fibrillation is that it leads to a cardiac arrest. It's just not a good, the idea is good, but the system fails. So people that have ventricular fibrillation as an arrhythmia, and people get this for other reasons, and but it's a incredibly serious situation. They're not able to put this blood into the system that goes not only to all the different organs and muscles and tissues, but to the brain, and you go into cardiac arrest. And what they did with Damar Hamlin on the field was they gave him CPR for several minutes, and they had what was called an AED. And an AED is an automated external defibrillator defibrillator. So it stops the fibrillation. And we've all seen in movies and television shows how they take these paddles and they shock a heart back into a normal rhythm. This does exactly that. What's interesting about this, and people are totally afraid of this, if there's an AED device and somebody, you know, drops dead next to them, they're just, you know, they're praying, they're not opening this box. And it's designed in such a great way that you, that it actually talks to you. You open up this package and a voice comes out, message comes out. Okay, put the unit here, place this thing here. Here's the button, stand back, push the button. And it defibrillates the heart. But unless that person is having ventricular fibrillation, it's not going to go off. So the the device actually reads the Whoa. arrhythmia. It knows the That's arrhythmia. That's so cool. So you're not going to shock yourself because you're not in ventricular fibrillation. So it's a lot safer than people think. People are totally afraid. See, of I it. did not. It 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 knows. It can tell. It knows. So that we, is wow. so cool. We've all heard of. We all know that Dick Cheney had had one of these, but his was implantable. His was an ICD. This was okay. internal, so that if his heart fails, and he goes into cardiac arrest, it automatically just defibrillates his heart. So they have they have these. So what's interesting is that in youth athletes, the leading cause of death is comatio cortis, is this problem. Really? Did because they know this? Did they know this up until now? We're now looking backwards at ah. this and trying to understand what's been happening with these kids. I mean, we've always thought it was some arrhythmia, but now we understand how this works. And in, in kids, their sternum, the chest bone, goes down the middle of the chest, 
isn't as developed or as strong as it is in adults. So if they get hit in the chest, Mm. they're more vulnerable. And this can happen in any contact sport. It can happen in baseball, football, lacrosse, wrestling, all of these things. So what do we do about this? Well, first of all, we can pad these uniforms a little bit better. That's one thing. We can teach every coach and trainer on the field CPR, which is what happened to DeMar Hamlin. He had a good medical staff that was because it's a professional team. They had all these people and they knew CPR. They should be able to make these AED devices available everywhere mm-hmm. for high school kids. For And lastly, which I've always felt was appropriate, is that if you have a child that's going to be playing contact sports, get a cardiology evaluation on these kids. That should be <sighs> mandatory before they're wow. allowed to play. Yeah. Because there are kids that do have some underlying heart issues that could predispose them to being vulnerable to this. So there are some things that we can do. And now that we've sort of figured this out, it opens the door. So Jerry, I hope that has uh, not only helped explain this, it's probably scared you a little bit, but don't be- I'm terrified. (laughs) Don't be afraid of the AEDs. That's the big message here. And start a bocce league for children. I think that is the biggest I message. I think that kids, bocce for children is underrated. Lawn bowling. Wouldn't that be great? Lawn bowling mm-hmm. for kids. Very civilized. You sit there, you have a sandwich, you throw the little thing a while, you sit down, you have something to drink. I, thought I think this is the way to go. It's I think it's the way to go. By the way, we start the Albert Einstein Bocce League. I think that's, <laughs> that's the way to go. So, David, let's recap here. Uh, a test for brain impairment that can detect potentially problems early. Yes. Yeah, so early detection means early treatment and interventions, which should impact, hopefully, the amount of dementia that we're going to see later on. And we also covered a new cause for UTIs, uh, E. coli, from food sources, and how to help prevent that. So wash your chickens, and wash your hands and your cutting boards, and pay attention. Also, underarm sweating, if you have an excessive sweater, as are 15 million people, there's hope. There's good news. And this is a simple treatment. It's three minutes and it will last a few months. And hopefully this will be applicable to other areas where people are having this same problem. And finally, Dr. Kipper gave us a wonderful explanation of Commodio Cordis and what happened to Damar Hamlin. And with that, we say goodbye. I want to thank Anna for today, Dr. Kipper, producer Laurie, and thank you for listening. And of course, if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, follow us at bedsidematters.org. And if you have a medical question you need answered, go to bedsidematters.org and send it to us. We'll see you next episode. And thank you for listening. And if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, all you have to do is follow us at bedsidematters.org. And if you have a medical question that you need answered, just go to bedsidematters.org, send it to us, and we'll see you next episode. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.